Hey there, my name is Austin Moyers and I'm into small mechanical keyboards and bluegrass music and Monster Hunter Rise, which you should play with me. My name is Michael Pugh and I am fascinated by martial arts, farming simulator esports, and extreme ironing. Welcome to Chronically Fixated. Yeah, welcome to Chronically Fixated. I want to know more about farming simulator esports. Can you tell me about this as a brief aside? Not today. Not today. <laughs> no, no. I'll I'll save it since you're so interested in it. I'll I really it. am so interested. I just can't even imagine. <laughs> it's pretty intense. They even do like a pick ban phase with like what vehicles you're allowed to use. <laughs> but, but my like my understanding of farming simulator is that it's like a really really long form game. Am I wrong about that? Uh, no, you're not, but we, we will, it's for another episode, Austin, quit ruining my future content. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, Michael. Uh, yeah, this is Chronically Fixated. It's the podcast where we talk about things we like and have liked, and it's also the podcast where our pets lay nearby and play with their toys that you might hear, which mm-hmm. is, you may think it's annoying, but just remember that it's cute animals, and then you'll think, that's not annoying, that's cute. Isn't that right? Yes. Hopefully, little Athena doesn't unplug my headphones because she's still going to town, and now she's on the keyboard. Oh my goodness! Come on, sweetie! Come (laughs) on, sweetie! I can hear her little (laughs) little paws on the keys. That's so cute. (laughs) All right. So, what are we talking about today, Austin? It's our first joint topic where we're both talking about the same thing. Mm Hmm. Why don't you tell yeah. the folks what we're working with? Yeah, this week we're going to be talking about our our good friend and um f- friend friend of the podcast J.R.R. Tolkien and his dun, very, dun, dun, <laughs> various works. Dun, uh, Glorious. Dun, uh, dun, uh, dun, uh, I'm excited. Yeah, I am too, for sure. Um, we both we both <laughs> love um tolkien specifically lord of the rings i don't know how much you've you've messed with the other stuff have you looked into some i have yeah i so there are some people who like lord of the rings there's some people who love lord of the rings Mm -hmm. and then there are tolkienists (laughs) and i am a tolkienist i read a lot of his stuff uh i've even read like his some of his academic publications from back when he was um, writing like journal articles and things like that about linguistics i am a big fan of tolkien yeah me too i've uh... we will have no no shortage of things to talk about this episode (laughs) so so michael's a big tolkien fan i wrote my master's dissertation on tolkien um so yeah we're both we both like him um if you don't know who we are and, and didn't figure it out when he just mentioned Lord of the Rings, um, J.R.R. Tolkien is the author of Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit and The Silmarillion and um, yeah. several and other. He also taught philology and languages at Oxford for quite a long time. Yeah, he's a professor. Um, super cool dude. Uh, really influential, incredibly influential to the genre of, of speculative fiction in general. Um, but fantasy in particular mm-hmm. and sort of the ways that people write now and think about it and, and, uh, and the ways that academics think about that genre. Um, yeah, he's a, a monolith, a huge figure. Um, and you may, you may think that he's, you know, pretty cool just because the stories are pretty cool, but then, uh, it goes beyond that. So yeah, we're talking about him today. Um, which is, it's fitting because this is, um, we're recording this on March 27th, but, uh, you should be hearing this on or after the 29th, but um, either way, that next weekend is Easter. Uh, yeah, for you guys, for for me, it's still a little while away because I'm yeah. orthodox. But for right. most people, it's it's Easter Sunday, so right. I I get to double dip and celebrate with all my non orthodox friends and my orthodox friends. So what a delight! I get two Easter's. <laughs> well, um, Tolkien was a Christian and. Uh, one of the kind of cool things about his legendarium is that he really thought a lot about the dates of of when the events happened and 
in several like appendixes and uh and also in like the the histories of middle earth like the 12 volume series that was just kind of published of his notes you can you can find a lot about these different dates and so um march 25th which was two days ago but um is a significant date in tolkien and in um christianity um, as in the English tradition, March 25th was the date of the first Good Friday. And um, and Tolkien sort of observed that and plugged it into Lord of the Rings by making March 25th the day that the ring officially went into Mount Doom and Sauron was defeated. Um, and then further, December 25th, um, which is the day Christ was born, is the day that the Fellowship left Rivendell. Um, so the whole journey from, from Rivendell to the destruction of the ring takes place between, um, Jesus birth and Jesus death on the Christian calendar, uh, which I think is a really kind of neat by, by Shire reckoning by Shire reckoning. <laughs> yeah. So I think that's kind of a really neat kind of like, uh, almost like mystical framing of events that ties it to, uh, to Christianity in a way that isn't super obvious but that like really has a lot of, of thought behind it on his part so anyway all that to say march 25th is significant also it's international tolkien reading day and i think it's cool that we accidentally decided to talk about tolkien on this particular weekend <laughs> yeah so i guess we should start with austin what was your first exposure to tolkien and his works and his world and what what was your experience with that? And when do you remember like really being gripped by it? Because you and I, I know, are both we're 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 hardcore Tolkien fans. We <laughs> probably a little bit more than people who just like the movies or read the books once. For crying out loud, you did your master's thesis about it. So Yeah. How did that how did your um love of of his works really start? Uh for me, um my first exposure was the Hobbit when I was a, a tiny wee little babe. Um, my dad, that, that was my, my bedtime stories weren't like maybe the regular bedtime stories. So by the time I was like seven or eight, my dad had read me the Hobbit and then all of Lord of the Rings and then all of the Chronicles of Narnia. And then also, um, a wrinkle in time. So a lot of, a lot of, you know, fantasy type stuff at, at bedtime. But the first one I think was the Hobbit. Um, and you know, he did all the voices and, and I, I don't know how much I was comprehending because <laughs> I was cool. really, really young, but I remember really enjoying it and it was kind of formational for me and how I imagined things and the, and the stories that I made up as I was, you know, playing with friends or whatever. Um, so that was my first exposure and it just kind of really set me in motion for the things that I'd be interested in for the rest of my life, if that makes sense. Um, mm -hmm. so I'm super thankful. Shout out to my dad. Thanks for reading. Uh, what about you? What was your what was your first exposure? So, if I remember correctly, uh, I think like a like a lot of people, I think my first exposure to Tolkien was actually the the Peter Jackson films, which some people I don't really get why, especially some really hardcore Tolkien fans like to turn their nose up at. Uh, I'm definitely not one of those people. Mm -hmm. I think those movies are pretty significant uh, cinematic accomplishments. Absolutely. And I think they do pretty good justice to a lot of Tolkien's work. And they're not perfect, of course, but we could probably have a whole other episode where we just talk about those films and the making of those films and things that I think they do really well, things that I think they don't do quite as well. Yeah. And, man, I must have been like only three or four when, when the first one came out, yeah. Fellowship of the Ring came out, and apparently my family went to see it in theaters, but I think I'm too young to remember. It wasn't until I was at a family friend's house, and we, you know, my my mom was talking with them. Shout out to, uh, shout out to Miss Rita. And they had a VHS copy of Fellowship of the Ring. And I remember popping it in in the other room and watching it. And that's when I remember it really gripping me. Because that was the time where, and I was, at this point, I was probably maybe like 
five or six. So it's a little bit older. I could kind of follow the story like a little bit better. But at this point, I was still just kind of watching it because like, ah, like cool, cool knights and stuff, fighting monsters and everything, Mm -hmm. you know, the the kind of stuff that a lot of young boys would be interested in Lord of the Rings for. And I remember this, I have this very distinct memory of hearing my mother crying from the other room. And I paused the movie to go see what was going on. And that's when I found out that this like little trip that we were taking to Texas from when I was living in Albuquerque was more permanent than I thought because my parents were getting a divorce and my mom was crying very upset about it of course and I remember holding her hand and telling her it was going to be okay even though I didn't really understand what was going on you know yet mm-hmm. I didn't really know what a lot of those terms meant which of course my mom did a great job of explaining all that to me later and helping me out with that and I remember I went back just kind of confused a little bit not really understanding what was going on but I knew that something like pretty significant had happened <laughs> something about it's just that you get that feeling that like okay something about my life is about to be different like when you're a kid but you don't really understand why and I went back to unpause the VHS and you know that's when I heard uh, I wish none of this had happened. I wish oh. the ring had never come to me. And Gandalf, portrayed excellently by Ian McKellen, just looks at him and says, so do all who see such times, but that is not for us to decide. All that we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to us. Uh, and that sounds... That sounds too perfect to be real it's the unreal timing that's it kind of was it's it's just and i remember just sitting there and feeling comfy and just watching the rest of that movie and of course you know a few years later when my reading was a little bit better came the books and i've been uh really invested in tolkien's works ever since Uh, they've Mm -hmm. they've gripped me pretty much ever since that moment when i was a kid yeah, that makes sense. That's a, a pretty significant moment, I would say. That sort of cements it. Um, on a very much lighter note, I have a couple questions for you. <laughs> Go ahead. Did you ever watch those cartoons from the seventies? Yes, later the the rotoscope like animated ones. There's the yeah. there's the Hobbit cartoon, and then there's the rotoscoped. Uh, Lord of the Rings movie that covers basically like the first book and like the half of the two towers. I think they also did a Return of the King. I've never seen that. If that if that's out there, because I because I, I remember, just remember thinking the Urukai animation was really spooky, <laughs> and the ring wraiths were really spooky. Very spooky. I remember Sam like doing the thing where where he's running up the tower, acting like a big elf warrior. You know, like I remember that specifically in. Oh uh, uh, yeah in cartoon form but i could have i don't know i could have made it up but yeah those are what a weird time those are so yeah it's a it's a funny thing to compare against all all the other like peter jackson's you know like these incredible Mm. books and i think those came out in the 70s right yeah yeah 70s i think yeah and they made like no money because they was Mm -hmm. really at the time, not not quite as well known. <laughs> Fantasy works rotoscoped, animated, with uh, with some rather strange visuals at times. <laughs> but they have their own they have their own merits. But I, I haven't seen them enough to really talk about them at length. But yeah, I've checked them out. Yeah, it's been a long time since I've seen them too. I remember that they included the uh, the songs, which was kind of fun. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, which is which is something that that uh, Peter Jackson did didn't do almost at all. This is kind of a big question, but what, why, why do you like it? Why Why do you like like Tolkien? Why do you appreciate him as a person? And and why do you like this, this world he's created? You know, why, why, why Middle Earth be the place that you write your thesis about as opposed to, you know, Westeros or Shannara or, you know, Mm -hmm. 
what is it about his works that you think makes him stand out? Um, I, I think that it, it started because it was what, what I knew, you know, like it's what I was introduced mm-hmm. to. It was the first sort of fantasy world that I really dug into. Um, and that, and it's remained that way. I've read, I've read a whole lot of fantasy, but it's that it feels like home, like Middle Earth feels more familiar and more, I don't know, um, easy to slip back into than a lot of the others. Um, mm-hmm. And like, just thinking about the fact that like, like, I'm pretty sure he invented the word orc. Yeah. <laughs> and now all of these other things say orc, you know, like it just, it just feels like the, the older, more, more true um creation uh and um it, it's so charming if, if you've never read it if you've never read any of his stuff um it can seem kind of intimidating i would say but like once you get going it's just it's so charming it's so witty it's so clever it's so beautiful um just so well written and it really stands the test of time i would say as well um that's some of the reasons um but also I think the things that Tolkien cares about really align a lot with the things that I care about. Um, and a lot of that has to do with, with mm-hmm. the fact that he was um, writing, not, not a Christian allegory or anything like that, but just sort of like this um, oh, yeah. myth influence. <laughs> Don't use the A word around Tolkien. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He, he was writing, he was, you know, weaving this myth um, with sort of the Christian myth in mind and sort of intertwining these in ways that are harder to pick out, but come, but, but really show themselves in, in what matters in middle earth and in what, what the, what the people care about. And, um, and that is really interesting to me and really compelling, which is why I ended up doing my dissertation on it, um, which was about, it was, uh, about creation stewardship. And, um, I wrote specifically about like a holistic conception of creation stewardship, which, locates um man mankind within that creation rather than as like a separate um and superior steward um sort of like man Mm -hmm. as plant um so (laughs) that's that's some of the reasons why i like it also it's just really cool man you know like (laughs) the movies are really good and that is a big reason why i why i've stuck with it this whole time is because like they're good to watch and you know, I've I've watched the movies a whole lot more than I've read the book. Um, but I've I mean I've read the book all the way through probably probably just four times I would say. Um, mm-hmm. and and I've had like probably six marathon sessions of the movie where I've done it all in one day. And then, oh yeah, you know, loads of other times just individually. So. Yeah, it's just this thing, it's this thing that, that is constantly around that makes me feel comfortable that I've always loved. And uh and I love to share with people. And so yeah. What about you? What uh what what made it stick with you? What why do you like it? If if you if someone had never read Lord of the Rings or or watched the movies or any Tolkien, if you want to go that route, um, how would you convince them that it's worth doing? For me, there's this sense that what a lot of the culture seems to tell us is when you grow up, you, your stories have to, have to grow up with you, right? Like mm. um, once, once you lose your, your childlike innocence and you realize that the world is all complicated and messy and gross you need to only be like consuming media that is complicated and messy and gross, right? Otherwise you're, you know, you're just not prepared for the world. I don't know. Or you're, you're too childlike or things like that. And if you, if you want to cling to those old stories that you grew up with or that are simple, uh, then there's something wrong with you or you should be like embarrassed about it. Mm -hmm. And Tolkien just, absolutely rebels against that idea absolutely so hard. yeah and you know for example like the the defining fantasy story of our time is undoubtedly game of thrones 
in terms of its influence on television and its place. culture in general. And yeah, and I think think of game Game of Thrones has its merits. Uh, I read the books a long time ago, and I watched the show while <laughs> skipping over some particular parts. <laughs> quite frankly, out of respect for my wife, um, <laughs> which she appreciated. Um, but and I was like, yeah, this is good. This is well written. These are interesting characters. But at the end of the day, it's like, why isn't this gripping me as much as Tolkien when the world of Westeros is so much like people in it are so much closer parallels to how people behave in the real world because there are schemers, there are liars, there are backstabbers, there are, you know, there's, you gotta, you gotta watch your back. Everyone's greedy and self-interest is like the biggest motivator. And uh, it's not that like George R. R. Martin paints those things as like good. He's just like, yeah, this is how the world works. So I'm going to write a fantasy story about that. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that there's no value in that. But at the end of the day, I think it's actually an extremely powerful message, especially during our time of there's good, there's evil, and good wins. Mm -hmm. And no, because Tolkien firmly believed in good and that good would win doesn't make him naive. I mean, the man fought in the first world war. He was not ignorant of the ways of the kingdoms of men, you know, as he would put it. And I think, especially during our time of so much division and conflict, there is something powerful about what is essentially a fairy tale where the good guys are good and noble and true and they don't have, you know, s sinister, selfish motives behind their, their do-goodery. The, they don't desire power just for the sake of it. Mm -hmm. um, they, they treat their fellow man respect respectfully. They treat women respectfully. They, they care for the natural world, you know, and the evil guys are evil and they're often ugly and scarred and mm -hmm. monstrous. And you can tell that they're evil from a mile away and the good guys win. And I think that that's actually the kinds of stories that we probably need more than something like Game of Thrones, because we live in a world where people don't feel like the good guys win. Mm -hmm. And to me, that's that's what gives tremendous value to Tolkien is he just reinforces this idea that the natural world is good. People have the capacity to be extremely heroic, even the most unlikely people. And evil is vile and disgusting and despicable, but it can absolutely be overcome. And I guess to me, the reason I return to that story more than other fantasy stories, especially because... No fantasy story has gripped me like Tolkien's work. It's it's always been mostly sci-fi for me. It's just because Tolkien refuses to to give in to this idea that um, you need to grow up and leave behind your fairy tales. Yeah. He says no. It's it's when you're in that gross and messy world that you need those fairy tales even more than you did as a kid. Yeah. If you're... you need, you need that message that that good guys win, and I love that. If you're uh, if you're listening to this and interested in what he's talking about, um, Tolkien has an essay called "On Fairy Stories" that you can probably find online for free. That really just kind of outlines all all of that why like why it's so important to enter into the world of fairy and to and to hope and and long for good, um, and why it's it's okay for you know adults to do that as well as children. Um, yeah, I I echo all that you said. That's all. Some of the greatest things about Tolkien, for sure. It's one of those things that like with with stories like like Tolkien's work, I think when you encounter him as a kid, you don't realize what he's doing, right? You don't realize how these stories are helping you kind of work things out mm -hmm. and figure things out. And as I've gotten older, I've realized so much of what I value like you said, I like Tolkien 
because he values a lot of things that that I value. Maybe this is true for you, but I value a lot of things that I value because Tolkien valued them. Right, because and he you convinced like me that they were valuable. Yeah, he convinced me that they were valuable. Yeah, it absolutely forms wow. you when you when you interact with this stuff for so long. Um, it it does influence the way the way you see things, you know. So I think that's absolutely right. That a lot of a lot of my values have probably grown out of a lot of the values that I care about that I just mentioned have grown out of how much time I've spent with the story. You know? Yeah. Like, I think the entire reason, although it's not my passion in life and I leave it to people who, who have the know-how and the expertise to do it. I think part of the reason why I see like a ecology is so important. I didn't realize it, but Tolkien was instilling those values in me as I was young Mm -hmm. with the, the beautiful green of the Shire and uh, the Ents who are the shepherds of the forest and uh, Tolkien prevents, presents this world where like other than Mordor, the, the, the different realms live in an acceptable like harmony with, with the created world of middle earth. And it wasn't until I got older and, and researched like Tolkien's personal life that I realized why that was so important, mm-hmm. but it had, that had become important to me, you know, Tolkien says that he loves places that have more green and less noise, right? And um, you see that reflected in how he talks about the elves and how he talks about the hobbits and their way of life, which by modern standards, people would probably criticize as being too simplistic or they, they live in ignorance or they're you know not productive enough. But for Tolkien, the good life was living in your hobbit hole smoking good pipe weed and eating a lot and farming and (laughs) having a lot of kids. (laughs) Like that's what the good life was. And I agree. I think that sounds great. (laughs) Yeah. I think it's, there are some more like nuanced views throughout all of that. Like um, there, I think there's one letter where he talks about how he, he tries to make the things he's most annoyed about with the English folk, um, come alive in his hobbits yeah. <laughs> which is it's it's like it's like an endearing annoyment but but it, yeah mm-hmm. um and then also the the harmony in which the elves live with nature is kind of interesting um and we can get into this more later if you want because that's that's what a lot of my dissertation was about but like some of the elves live in harmony and certainly in the past they lived in harmony but now like for example um in galadriel's wood it's kind of like in this frozen state of unhealthy nostalgia where everything is, is gold, which in, if you think of the seasons is the stage right before the leaves fall. And it's like, they're trying to control um, nature and, and keep it back into in this, in its beautiful state where it was when they were, uh, when they were at their, at their highest power. But the time of the elves Mm -hmm. is coming to an end and, and they know this. And so they're kind of fighting against uh, what, what direction the world is going. Um, and holding on to this past vision that isn't really possible anymore. Um, and, and by, by nature, not allowing their forest to flourish in the way that it should, because it's frozen in the state where it can't go into the next stages of life. I'm always fascinated by the juxtaposition that's set up between Denethor and Gandalf. So I always thought it was really interesting that Denethor's official title steward is the steward of gondor mm-hmm. and he's a horrible horrible steward um which comes out in the third film for peter jackson but in the books there's this really disturbing bit where he kind of nonchalantly talks about how you know you kind of have to admire mordor though like they really know how to how to utilize all their resources mm-hmm. and you know gandalf who you know, it's not as clear in the movies, but in the books, I mean, he's he's basically an angel, right? Like, right. is is horrified by by that mentality that you would think what it means to be a good steward is is to use as much resources as possible. Like, <laughs> he says, "I too am a steward, though not like you," and then just kind of rails into him. I, yeah, that's I think that's really significant, and also um, the tree of Gondor under the stewards. Um, is is wilted mm. and then the second that the that the king returns um the a new tree is planted and it's it blossoming flowers. yeah 
um, this is okay. So this is one of the one of the other reasons why I love Tolkien so much is because we're talking about some of these things that you don't notice on the first pass through, and like it's a good story if you just take it as a story. Like when I was when I was ten years old, I could have told you all the steps of the story and and why I liked it. And it's like you know you meet the hobbits and then they go here and then they go here and then they meet the fellowship and then they go here mm-hmm. and then they're in their minds of Moria and that's scary and then they go here, you know. And it's like it has all the, it's a, it's a story, but it can go as deep as you want it to. Like he wrote a lot of stuff about this world and he prepared a lot of stuff about this world before he wrote this book. Um, he really, really built it up. And if you want to know more, you can know as much as you want. Like one of my favorite things is in, in the Mines of Moria, the, the Balrog that Gandalf fights and ultimately falls with is of the same order as Sauron. Like they are, they were both in Morgoth's army. They were both commanders in Morgoth's army. And it's like, in the movie, you see it for what, 10 minutes? And then it's gone. But it's like this mm-hmm. massive being of power of the same order of Sauron that Gandalf fights all by himself. And you just wouldn't know that unless you had, you know, spent some time in the Silmarillion and some other stuff, you know? Um, so you can go as deep as you want. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons you why don't I even like realize it. really how, how significant that is. Yeah. yeah. You're just like, ooh, a scary fire demon. Yeah. Then you read some of the other stuff, you go, whoa, that was basically like an arch demon that he just fought you know very big deal um you want to take a break michael let's go ahead and take a break austin let's go to the break here we are welcome to the break take a rest um why don't you sit a while grab a pot of stew at our inn have some old toby (laughs) (laughs) um i wonder if you know how it says that uh is it mary or pippin one of them wait we're in the break i'm not supposed to be talking about this sorry um (laughs) yeah we'll we'll save it we'll save it we'll save it (laughs) um so uh what do we have to say in the break let's see uh thank you for listening if you're listening on itunes please uh leave us one of those nice little five star reviews if you please um or whatever you know however many stars you want um uh, Where can they tweet us, Austin, if they'd like to tweet us? If you if you would like to tweet us on Twitter, you could find us at at C Fixated Pod. Um, and if you if you don't want to tweet at us, you can still follow it. All I do there is I I uh, just tweet out when a new episode drops. Um, but if people start interacting with it, I I can certainly respond back. So yeah, if you have any feedback or anything feel like free that. To read. Yeah, comments, feedback, suggestions for future topics. Yeah, suggest we have you gotten any of those, by the way, Michael? Suggestions? Uh, yeah, I've gotten a few. Cool, I've gotten a few. Yeah, so keep those coming. Um, big thanks to uh, fellow American for the use of our theme song, "Island" off of the album "Hold Your Breath." It's a sweet tune, sweet band, cute boys. Very cute. I love them. <laughs> Um, okay, cool. Well, I guess let's get back into it. Thanks for being on our break, everyone. I hope that you had a nice time. Um, that will be two gold pieces and come again. Drink some water. Welcome back. So the question I have to kick us off after this break Mm -hmm. is, what are some of your, you know, let's just start with one. What's what's one of your favorite moments from from Tolkien's works, from the books that so, has stuck with you? I mentioned, I think I've read Lord of the Rings all the way through like four times, but I have read the chapter Treebeard probably close to 20 times because it is one of my favorite chunks of reading <laughs> of anything ever. I think it's incredible. Um, I love everything in it. I love his little, really little rhyme, tree birds rhymes and his little poems. I love the way he talks. I think it's so good. And so it's like a nice little reprise from all of the, the crazier stuff that's happening. Um, just this banter between tree, tree beard and the two hobbits, um, that, so that I, th- I think that chapter and what goes on there is some of my favorite moments in, in all of the story. Um, what about you? I think, one of the sections I return to over and over again is the courage of Master Samwise. 
Absolutely. Um, that is one of the greatest moments in the trilogy. And Sam, over time, has become probably my favorite character in the series. And the one that I would most like to be like in, yeah. in real life. He's a hero. Sam is, you know, yeah, for people who aren't as familiar, Sam is a very mild-mannered, you know, he's he's Frodo's gardener. He's kind of thrown into the adventure very unexpectedly, uh, almost against his will. But Gandalf is like, nope, you're going to take care of Frodo and you're going to make sure that he gets to Mordor. And, you know, towards, towards the end of the story, Frodo has been taken by Shelob, an evil, demonic, horrible spider. And Sam finds his courage truly for the first time in the story, although there have been hints of it throughout the, the series. Faces down Shelob, you know, takes, you know, he, th- he thinks Frodo dead because Shelob's poison paralyzed him. Mm-hmm. And so he, he, with great conviction, storms into uh, just a tower, just swarming with, with orcs and urukai, sneaking in to, to save his, his best friend and his companion and make sure that the quest is done. And to me, the, the, this chunk of the story, the, the bit that always sticks out to me is they're in Mordor, this poisonous gas everywhere and fire and smoke and ash. And they're laying down and they're, they're struggling for breath and they're horrified by what they see. And Frodo's unconscious and Sam looks up at the sky and for a brief moment, the clouds part and he sees a single star and he thinks about, I bet, I bet all our friends back home and all our friends in the fellowship can see that star. And if a little bit of light can, can find its way even here in Mordor, then, then there's hope. And he just kind of holds Frodo and just says like, it's, it's going to be okay. Like we're going to make it. And that moment to me is just incredibly powerful. Yeah. I love the way that Sam finds his courage and he can see hope even in literally the worst place that you could possibly be. Yeah. I, the I, closest I, you can get to hell on earth in Middle Earth. I love Sam so much. And he is a generally hopeful character, but that moment when he thinks Frodo's dead, um, he like almost gives mm-hmm. in to despair, you know? He's almost like, it's over. Um, mm-hmm. I failed and I should just die now. Um, but, but he pushes past it and grabs the ring and decides he's going to finish the quest by himself until he finds out that Frodo's still alive and then he goes rescue him. But, but yeah, I think that it's mm-hmm. the fact that he like, cause he, he's not an unrealistically positive character the whole time, you know, like he has mm-hmm. these moments of, of doubt here and there, but, but he still pushes through. Yeah. He's incredible. I love Sam so much. Um, what do you think about, Peter Jackson's decision for that weird little side story about Gollum throwing the the bread over the cliff and Sam getting um, abandoned by Frodo. I think it's okay. Uh, I think since you don't get to see as many of the little interactions that Frodo and Sam have throughout the story, like you do in the books, Mm -hmm. it was a way to reinforce Gollum's villainy. Yeah. And it was a way to show just the the psychological toll that the ring has on Frodo, that it would make him even consider that that Sam would 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 want to harm him. So it's it's kind of cinematic shortcut to fill in some of those moments that you don't get to see because there's just not enough time. Yeah. So I was okay with it. I know some people aren't. I think it works. I think. For the movies, it also does make Sam finding his courage uh, quite a triumphant moment. Yeah, yeah, for sure. You know, when when he, you know, he shows up right as you think Frodo's done for. And just charges you know, in, yeah. Wielding his, wielding his sword, saying, Un- unhand him, you filth, you know. Uh, I think it's one of the, I think it's a great moment in the movies, too. Yeah, I, um, I agree. Um, it, it, it does make me so sad, though. When when Frodo's like, go home, Sam. Go home, yeah, go home. 
I think I think Sam is remarkable to me because as a as a character, the way Tolkien wrote him is all all the hobbits, like when when they're like, we're gonna go on this adventure, you know, like Merry and Pippin, they're most excited about, oh, what what forms of tobacco will we discover and what kinds of food will be out there? And Sam's like, I just want to meet the elves, right? Mm-hmm. He has this admiration. Like Tolkien establishes the elves as the most beautiful and all creation, you know, the these beings of light. And Sam is one of the only hobbits that's able to like appreciate that. And I love the little detail. I don't know if you remember this, but of course, after the adventure is over, Sam, you know, he's he's elected mayor of the Shire like over and over again till he dies. <laughs> right? right. And he he marries Rosie Cotton. And who is unusually has blonde hair for a hobbit. And I love the little detail that there had always been rumors that somewhere in her family line was a little bit of elven blood. Right? Oh, yeah. But of no, course, that would that. be the woman that, yeah, in the appendixes, it's like uh, Tolkien doesn't say, oh, she has elven blood. But it's like there had always been talk among the Shire folk that perhaps somewhere in her family history, there had been some elven blood. And it's like, of course, that's who Sam would. That's cute. Would. Uh, would would fall for immediately right um Um, and he's also one of the biggest heroes in the story and he's a gardener yes that's what i was about to say he's not like a knight um yeah talk about that going back to what you were saying about it being a fairy tale like one of the one of the biggest characteristics of fairy tale is that like in the end everyone comes to be known by their true name or who they truly are Um, and so like the, the honorable who are, you know, lowly in the world rise up to the levels of Kings and, and the the Kings who are, are, um, despicable, um, get thrown down and things like that. And so Sam, who is a servant, um, in the end, uh, becomes sort of the, the steward of, of the Shire, if you will. Um, Mm -hmm. and of Hobbiton specifically. He I helps think. them rebuild after the scouring. Yeah. yeah. After the scouring and, and he uses the the seeds that Galadriel gave him to replant all of the trees. And and yeah, I think that's super significant that um and he is sort of the main example that I used in my dissertation of what it looks like to grow as as the plants grow into this figure that then can become a steward that can help others grow. Um because he starts as as this scared scared gardener boy who knows exactly where the last step he's ever taken from from his home is right he says this is the first i've ever been Mm -hmm. from home um and like i couldn't tell you where that is for me you know (laughs) like only people who you have to have a certain level of fear i think um about where you're going to be able to recognize how far you've been um and he he Mm -hmm. progresses from that to this brave honorable incredible figure um and then he and then he leads um, and it is certainly significant that um, the character Tolkien chose to go through so much development and become such a hero is a gardener. Um, and I think Peter Jackson made the right call when Sam functions in those movies in a couple scenes as kind of a mouthpiece for Tolkien. So, of course, the famous movie speech at the end of The Two Towers it's like the great stories, Mr. Frodo, the ones that really mattered. You know, that whole monologue uh, isn't quite as flushed out in the books. But it's clearly Jackson allowing Sam to be Tolkien for a minute in that scene and talk about how important the stories are that we grew up with. Yeah. You know, and, you know, how you never thought they would make it, you know, you know but those people in those stories, they would, they would keep going because they were holding on to something. Frodo, of course, says, what, what are we holding on to, Sam? That there's some good in this world, Mr. Frodo, and it's worth fighting for, right? Mm-hmm. Um, one of the best scenes in the movies. And this is something I, I wanted to briefly touch on. And right now, there's, there's a lot of talk in culture and society right now about what is a good way of conceiving of masculinity and what it means to be man. And I think Lord of the Rings can actually help us quite a bit with that conversation because Tolkien is someone who is very 
traditional and how he sees the world and how he thinks the world should be. And he, but he has room in his story for the brave, noble king and expert fighter Aragorn to be seen as this like pinnacle of manhood. But he also has room for meek, gentle gardener Sam, right, to be also a true hero and mm-hmm. and a true male figure and and father and 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 brother in his story. And I think that's incredible that. Tolkien has rooms for all kinds of depictions of masculinity that yeah. are are traditional, but not what we would call toxic. You know, they're. Uh, I think I think I think uh, Tolkien would would be appalled by what people consider being a man now. He would he would call it shallow. Yeah, he'd say you know, you're you're acting like Denethor. You need to be like Aragorn, or you need to be like you need to be like Sam, right? <laughs> yeah, and even... I think that's that's. There's room for him in that conversation. Even uh, Aragorn um, has like this this more depth of uh, he's has this deep knowledge of of herblore and and plants and stuff, you know. And when uh, when the people in Gondor are mm-hmm. sick after coming in contact with the um, with the ring wraiths uh, with the Nazgul, he heals them with his he like takes the place of the healing woman and. And he, mm-hmm. the the true king of Gondor, serves as a as a healing person and and uses his knowledge of plants, um, which I think adds some complexity to his otherwise pretty like you know grisly characteristics in some ways. Yeah, um, he has some very ten- tender moments, super tender uh, that, that and show then, show a gentle side. Yeah, and then there's also there's not a fear of like of men showing emotion and, and love for one another, mm-hmm. which I think is also really healthy. Um, but if there's one thing I could change about Lord of the Rings, it would probably be, be to like include more women, generally speaking in the story. Um, mm-hmm. Which for his time, Tolkien was, was actually doing quite a bit with that. Yeah. Um, having, you know, uh, Eowyn, be the slayer of of the witch king of course, um, yeah. and having it directly tied to her femininity is the reason she's able to do that you know there there's there's still some powerful moments in there it, it's just interesting to me that super powerful but it's just like she she only shows up a few times you know mm-hmm. and and, uh, and then there's like just a couple other female characters that really actually matter at all yeah and some of that is um well, let's let's talk about this because this is one of the reasons. You no, know, okay, I know where I want this conversation to go. Why do you think, and what are your feelings? Although I probably already know what they are, about how Tolkien has kind of been disregarded in scholarship for a while, as not worth talking about. Now there have been some more recent efforts that have been rather successful of demonstrating that. His works are, are genuine literature and deserve careful consideration. Why why do you think he's so easily discarded? And why do you think that's not really fair? Um, I would just I think my initial thought would be um people not recognizing like what we talked about earlier about fairy stories and stories that you might think are for children are worth reading as an adult. And so it, when you look at this with that sort of mind frame, it's only a story and there's not anything of value in it. Um, and I think that a lot of people would look at it that way. Um, that would be my initial answer. What What are you getting at? I think there's a tendency to kind of look down on genre fiction, mm-hmm. you know, fiction that holds tightly to particular genre tropes that I think is unfair. I, I think it happens with, sci-fi at times it definitely happens with with horror especially horror films which i'll certainly talk about another another episode why i think horror films don't get the recognition they deserve uh, as pieces of art it's just kind of crazy to me because i i took an undergraduate class about tolkien from the fantastic dr kenneth holly who is a master of uh, medieval and English literature you know he 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 knows his stuff and showing up at that class and listening to him passionately read passages from Lord of the Rings was like the highlight of one of my last years of school 
and you know he experienced he expressed frustration that tolkien's not taken more seriously mm-hmm. because by the end of that class when i was writing these projects you know i wrote a paper you know obviously not to the same caliber as your dissertation but it was about tolkien and ecology and i wrote a paper just analyzing all of the the songs and poems that I was just like baffled because I was like, you know what? I don't care. I, I think Lord of the Rings is one of the greatest works written in the English language. Like I would put it up there with the canon of great English literature. I'd put it up there with Shakespeare and I'd put it up there with Dickinson and I'd put it up there, you know, with, you know, all with, with Mark Twain and all these things that are considered, this is, this is, fantastic literature written in the English language. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think Tolkien deserves that status for his influence. I do too. For the work there. Um, I, I think, and I hope that it, that it will sort of get to that point that it'll be considered a classic. Mm-hmm. Um, that I tell people that a lot, like when they ask, you know, why should I read it? And, and I say like it, I think that it will be one of the great classics. Like it is genuinely one of the greatest works ever. Um, mm-hmm. And when you think about Tolkien as a person, right? Like I love, I loved the books for a long time. It was only later that I began to admire Tolkien as a person. Mm-hmm. And when you realize this, this guy, I mean, he lost all of his friends in the first world war. Like basically everyone that he was close to at Oxford, like all died. And he was one of the only ones that made it out. He was in the Battle of the Somme, which was one of the most like horrific battles of the First World War. And he comes out of it doodling in his notebooks and writes what is undeniably, compared to a lot of the other literature that came from people involved in the First World War, incredibly hopeful and optimistic and, and aimed at like reinforcing the beauty of the world when you look at what a lot of the lost generation wrote afterwards was was not that understandably mm-hmm. i would not only say like i think tolkien's works are one of the greatest uh works in english literature i would say that tolkien is probably one of the finest englishmen who ever lived uh to go through such horrors and produce such beauty out of it takes an incredible an incredible character that I don't know if, if I possess, if you, I think few people possess. Um, and I, I greatly admire him for that. Maybe some might say I'm speaking too strongly, but like I said, I really love Tolkien. I really love his work. Yeah. <laughs> I am um, a contributor on an exhibition that was supposed to be at the Romani meeting in 2020. Um, it got canceled. And then they moved it to 2021 and then that didn't happen either. So I think it, I think that they're just doing it as an electronic exhibition at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a, it's a collaboration between university of St. Andrews where I was and Oxford and um, a few other schools um, uh, with lots of huge figures involved. It was, it was wild to be part of it, but essentially we, we were the, the meeting, what it turned into after everything sort of really kicked off in in 2020 was like, why, why is Tolkien important today? Um, and what we really tried to accomplish with this meeting is showing people that like, this is, it's important to read stuff like this because in a time like, like 2020, um, and now 2021 where there's, you know, a worldwide pandemic and all of these other horrible things going on, like, um, it's important to read authors that do have hope like you're talking about. Um, I am really, really sort of watering this down. Um, there's also a whole lot more about how, uh, oh, about yeah, of course, <laughs> collaborating with creation. If you want to check that out, by the way, um, you can go to the tree of tales.it. Um, that's the website for the, for our exhibition. Briefly, I have to mention uh, Tolkien's, romantic side where in the Silmarillion, the story of Baron and Luthia, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the parallels are easy to see. Baron, he is, he's tired. He's, he's war weary and walking through the forest sees 
beautiful elven maiden, right? Singing among nature and dancing. They fall in love and the story goes from there. And of course, written on Tolkien's grave where he's buried next to his wife, it doesn't say their names. It's just Baron and Luthia, right? Just, <laughs> mm, it's, yeah. I, sometimes I wonder if that world was more real to him than the one that he was in. But it's, yeah, it, I just think he was an incredible person. I would, it does, of course, take some liberties, but the recent movie Tolkien that's about his life, I think, does capture a lot of the spirit of what he was about. Yeah, uh, and I missed worth, that. Um, worth watching. Have you read Leaf by Niggle? No, that's one of the ones I haven't. It's a it's a short story by him, and it it is a direct allegory, which is kind of funny. Um, but it is it's this story of a painter who starts to paint this leaf, and he gets really really detailed on this one leaf. But then it starts growing, and he draws branches and more leaves and more branches and more leaves, and it just grows into this massive like building size painting of this beautiful beautiful tree. Um, and then the painter dies before he can finish it um, and kind of goes to this sort of afterlife world where he continues his painting, but in like th- three dimensions um, collaborating with some other people and creates a world based around the tree that he painted in his life um, and then like inhabits it. Um, and before, before the painter dies, he kind of has these fears like what if I, can't finish this. This is, this is getting out of hand. I've done so much. What if I, what if I can't bring it to fruition? Um, and so the allegory there is that like Tolkien for most of his life was thinking about middle earth. Right. Um, and it had grown into this massive complex thing, um, with so many individual stories like Baron and Luthien, which he mentioned, which he, he thinks is sort of the, the central kernel of all of middle earth and it's, and it's different stories and histories. Um, and he he worried that you know he wouldn't be able to to bring it to where he wanted it to be um before he before he died and what is really really beautiful about the fact that his gravestone says baron and luthien is that like it is him inhabiting the world of his creation that he devoted so much of his time to mm-hmm. yeah we i think probably at some point maybe maybe a year from now we'll have to do a part 2 because Austin and I, during the break, were like, oh my goodness, it's already been 30 minutes. Uh, because we could, there's so, there's so many levels to his work and his life as a person that I think are in, incredibly important and significant and worth discussing. Uh, you know, his love of languages, we, we didn't even really get to touch on how how the languages of Middle Earth function and and... Mm-hmm. And how he wanted them to sound, and <laughs> his yeah. famous statement about how cellar door is the most beautiful phrase in the English language, and his little his little idiosyncrasies like that. But the final thing I'll say, and then I'll turn it over to you for your final thought. So I just want to read this quote from Tolkien that I think really captures why I love him. He says, "Fantasy is escapist, and that is its glory." If a soldier is imprisoned by the enemy, don't we consider it his duty to escape? If we value the freedom of mind and soul, if we are partisans of liberty, then it's our plain duty to escape as well and to take as many people with us as we can. Mm -hmm. I love that. I love it. Yeah. Um, What are your final thoughts? I think what I'm going to say as a final thought is that I want to reiterate that Michael and I are people who have gone deep into Tolkien. And a lot of what we talked about today is sort of on that side. But like, if you've never experienced it, just, just read it, just jump in. Like it is a delight. Or just watch the films. If you, yeah, if you've not seen it, I think it's totally okay to watch the movies. Yeah. Watch them. They're good. They're good movies. But like, it's just, it's a delightful story and you do not have to get as deep as you want to. But I, I, th- I think you'll find, um, if you really start to, to love and inhabit these stories that you'll go deeper. Um, and, and, It'll really start to mean something to you. Um, but yeah, just get into it. There will it. be something that sticks to you. Gandalf's purity, Sam's courage, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. Aragorn's re- response to responsibility. Like, Mary and Pippin's friendship. You'll, something will... Something. Will, yeah. The, yeah. You know, the, you'll, 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 you'll find something that I think will, will 
stick with you for yeah. a long time. Well, thanks for listening, everyone. Um, glad you're here. Talk to you soon. Go read a book, find something you're interested in this week, and uh, see you next time. Not all who wander are lost, my friends. <laughs> Have a great week. Take me from my